We're going to be in uh, Amos chapter 9. We're going to finish the book, Lord willing, this morning. So if you have a Bible, you know, one of these Sundays we should do the Bible drill that we do in Awana every week, right? And make everyone stand up when they find it, and then we cheer on the rest that don't. (laughs) Any takers? All right. Amos chapter 9. As you're turning there, let me just ask, could you spot a counterfeit $20 bill if uh, you happen to have one? Could you spot it? I, I read, a, read and heard a fascinating story this week of a counterfeiter, Frank Barossa, who was successfully counterfeited $250 million in $20 bills. And he was nabbed in 2012, an undercover, undercover operation. $250 million in $20. That's 12.5 million 20s. That's a lot of deception. And they were all over. He fooled so many people for so long. And his bills are still in circulation because it's 12.5 million. So... Don't do it now. But you might have a 20 in your wallet, and it might not be a real 20. His counterfeiting was so close that it fooled everyone for years. And so I asked, could you spot the differences? Could you tell if yours was the real deal or, or fake? You know, as we come to the last chapter in the book of Amos, we come to a counterfeit who believes he is sovereign. We haven't talked a whole lot about him, but, but Jeroboam, the king who, who set up this counterfeit religious process and produced essentially, as we read and have read, counterfeit followers. You know, a counterfeit is, is something made in exact imitation of something valuable with the intention to deceive. And that was King Jeroboam the second. J.A. Moiter uh, in his commentary gives a, a good clear picture of how we got here into Amos 9. He, this is what he writes. 180 years before the time of Amos, in the year 930 or 931, Jerome I led off the ten northern tribes to make them into the kingdom of Israel. Even though he had come into the kingdom on a wave of popular feeling and excitement, Jeroboam knew that, knew that his position was essentially insecure. People were disaffected by the demands of Solomon's later years, and the final blow was the refusal of Rehoboam to negotiate a more favorable constitution. But as Jeroboam saw it, if the people continued to make an annual pilgrimage pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would remember the old golden days of David, and soon the claims of the old dynasty would re-exert themselves, and he would be cast off then with the same eagerness that he had been accepted." And so to mend this situation, he devised the sin of Jeroboam, the use of religion in the interest of politics. He contrived a feast of which we're told three main facts. First, that it took place in the 15th day of the eighth month. Secondly, that it was like the feast that was in Judah. And thirdly, that Jeroboam himself officiated the feast at the altar, or at least he stood prominently next to the altar, leading the ceremonies. He, He would go up to the altar. And this is the position in which he is found in 1 Kings chapter 13. 
It's a fascinating story. You should spend some time this afternoon reading that, 1 Kings 12 and 13. Because there's an unknown man, a prophet unknown coming, and he, he's going to deal with Jeroboam the first. And, and I won't give it away. You'll have to read it later. And he's standing by the altar burning incense. And the whole thing is a counterfeit. A counterfeit feast on a counterfeit altar to a propped up counterfeit monarchy. And the people couldn't spot the difference. They bought it. The years passed by the grim coincidences of God. Another Jeroboam is on the throne in Israel now. And another man of God out of Judah that we read in Amos, not anonymous, but Amos comes and he's there to see him take his stand by the altar. And one, one vision is about to be succeeded by another, by the great royal, uh, the, the autumn presentation of the ripe fruits that we read in chapter 8, verse 1, now to the great royal festival on the 15th day of the 8th month. Amos now watches Jeroboam, but even as he watches Jeroboam, he has a vision of now of what the Lord is doing. And we see that in chapter 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord, the sovereign one, standing beside the altar. And what we will see in this chapter is the counterfeit is replaced with the real. The human by the divine. The king who had come to prop up his counterfeit dynasty would become enthroned down by the real king. The day of pretense was over and the war on pretense had begun. And what we see in the first half of Amos 9 is what the Lord thinks of pretense. It's how he reacts to it and his judgment against it. And the es- essence of pretense is throwing a cloak of religion over a life that is motivated to, s- to serving and satisfying self. And God sees right through that and he will judge that. And in the second half of the chapter is the Lord's promise to his small but faithful remnant. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust of the chapter as we end Moses or Amos this morning. Our Lord will deal fairly with his enemies and he will fulfill his covenant with his people. Our Lord will deal fairly with his enemies and he will fulfill his covenant with his people. There's three points to this sermon. The real Lord finds his enemies. The real Lord cares for this world. The real Lord restores his people. As we come to this, as we've seen throughout this this book, the people have been worshiping a, a counterfeit God, really. One made in their own image one that was happy and content with their selfish lifestyles, but they will meet the real Lord. They will meet judgment. He will deal with their sin and he will restore his people. So I'm gonna pray as we begin. I'll pray for you. You pray for me, okay? God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together to worship. And I pray that you would help your people to understand who you are this morning. Teach us in your word, which shows us you. And may we come away changed this morning as a result of spending time with you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the real Lord finds his enemies. Chapter 9, verse 1, we'll read 1 through 6. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left on them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. 
If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. As we begin in chapter 9, we see, as I said, the Lord is standing beside the altar. He's removed from the mercy seat between the cherubim and stands beside the altar, the judgment seat on which the fire of God used to fall to devour the sacrifices. And he stands here to, to avenge, to, to the, avenge the, the fight of his altar with the king that's set up and also to signify that the sin of the house of Israel will be dealt with. They will not be able to outrun or hide from his presence. And he stands to show Israel that they have fallen for a counterfeit. The real Lord will deal with his enemies. There will be nowhere to run. Amos tells us here that no one is beyond the reach of God. You could dig down to the subterranean domain of Sheol and the Lord would snatch you out. You could climb to heaven and still the Lord would bring you down. If you climbed to the top of Mount Carmel with its forest and multitude of caves, God would still find you. If you were to swim to the depths of the sea, God would know where you are and would send judgment there. And even if you think if you cheated death by going into captivity, God would command the captors to slay you there. And what we see in these verses is that God is omnipresent. All other creations are located in space, but God transcends space. He is not limited by anything outside himself. See, he is fully independent. All other entities were were brought into existence by him and are completely dependent upon him and his sovereign will for their continuation. I don't know about you, but maybe you thought of uh, Psalm 139 when we read these verses here in Amos. Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God sees everything. He sees where we are. We can't escape him. The scriptures say wherever we go, God is there. There is nowhere in the entire universe, land or sea, heaven or hell, where someone can flee the presence of God. Herman Bobbick, in his book, The Doctrine of God, quotes a beautiful paragraph illustrating the practical application of the doctrine of God's omnipresence. Listen to this. He says, when you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of others, you remove yourself into your room. And even in your room, you fear some witness from another quarter. You retire into your heart. And there you meditate. 
He is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. From yourself, whether will you flee? Will you not follow yourself, whether you shall flee? But since there is one more inward, even than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. There is no place at all, whether you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee instead to him. Friends, we learn in this passage that God knows all of us. He sees us. He sees all of us. And he sees his enemies. There is no place where his enemies can flee his presence. And he will deal with sin in divine judgment. Do you believe in divine judgment? And what I mean by that question is, do you believe in a God who acts as our judge? I would surmise that many in our world today do not believe that. They don't want to believe that. If you were to speak of God just as our friend and our help and the one who loves us, most people would would enjoy that, would, would agree. They'd get on board. But when you speak of God as judge, they don't want to agree to that. They might get angry and want to leave the conversation as quickly as possible, but the scriptures are clear. God is judge over all. Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? He will judge. And yet people assume that the God of the Old Testament was just the God of judgment, but, but, but not in the New Testament. No, God, God somehow has is, is morphed into something else. He's a, he's a different God. But those people they don't read the Bible. Because if you spend time in the New Testament, you'll find that God hasn't changed. God cannot change. He's unchangeable. He's still judge. But what does it involve when God is judge? First, it means that he has the authority to judge. He is the maker of everything and everyone. He is the rightful king. So that means that God has the right to judge those that are his creation. Second though, he is full of wisdom to judge rightly. See, in our world, when someone is brought before a judge for court proceedings, the first job of the judge is to, is to gather the facts, to understand with the situation so that he can give judgment over the, the circumstance, so he can give a fair and right judgment. But God, as judge, means he doesn't spend that time and energy to find facts. He knows all the facts, and he can see just as it is. He knows everything. And when the Bible sees God as judge, it it emphasizes his omniscience and his wisdom as the searcher of our hearts and and the knower of all the facts. And nothing can escape God. He knows us, and he can rightly judge. And third, as God is judge, he has the power to execute the sentence. You know, again, in our own court systems today, the judge can only declare judgment. It's up to other departments of our justice system to execute the judgment, but not so with God. He has the power to execute all of his judgments. He legislates and sentences and he punishes. God has the power and strength to carry out all that he says he will do. He is omnipotent. 
And as Amos says, only the Lord controls the waters and the seas and the rain. Those are just further description of who God is. He is a mighty God. See, the, the weather is out of our control, right? No matter how much you want it not to rain and be beautiful like it is today, you have no control over it. But God does. He is Lord over all. And God in his omnipotence and his power will deal with sin. And what a great and mighty God who will take his exacting judgment into his own hands and it will be fair and it will be right. Matthew Henry in his commentary said, threatenings are more or less formidable according to the power that threatens. So think about that for a moment. When my six-year-old says, Dad, I'm going to get you, I'm going to take you down, I smirk because I'm going to have to let her do that. I, I know the power she has. But when I get a letter in the mail from the IRS, I don't smirk. It's a different set of power. And yet the IRS has nothing on God. You know, we can laugh at, at powerlessness that we see here on earth. But friends, how do you respond to a powerful, omnipotent God who will judge sin. The psalmist says in 46.6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. Only our God is the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it can melt. Our God is a mighty God. He is able to do anything that he pleases in this world. After all, it's his world. He created it. To my non-Christian friends that are here this morning, if you're not alarmed at the picture that Amos gives here in these first six verses, I need to wake you up out of your slumber. You need to realize that you've rejected God's rule over you. You are presently being deceived into thinking and believing that you're okay that you can outwit God, that you can sway and, and live however you please without any judgment coming, that everything will turn out fine, but you're not safe, friend. If you're not hiding under the great arm of Jesus Christ our Lord, you will stand before him as judge. You know, as I read through these six verses this week and, and meditated on them and thought through them I, and even chatted with Zach this week about it, you know, these attributes are sweet to us as Christians. We, we find comfort in these things of our God because he's mighty and strong and all-knowing. And as we live in this sinful world, that brings comfort to us. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, these should be terrifying to you because you've rejected this God. You've rejected his rule over your life. So friend, if you're here this morning you're not, and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross, then you will face this God one day and there will be wrath towards your rebellion and sin, and it will be swift and complete. 
And so I plead with you to turn. To turn from your sins and trust in Christ. He has absorbed your sins upon himself. And he can make you a new creature. If you have more questions, I would love to talk to you today. I know there's other elders and pastors that would love to sit down and talk through the gospel with you. Well, that's the first point. The real Lord finds his enemies and deal with them righteously. And secondly, the real Lord cares for this world. Look at verse 7. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations. One shakes a a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. See, the Lord here does not look on people in light of their historical past, but in light of their moral present. Every nation is under the moral scrutiny of an all-seeing God. There is ultimately no difference between Israel and the nations. The Lord was involved in more than exodus of Israel from Egypt. The Lord delivered the Philistines and Arameans from their respective enemies, but his actions didn't deliver them from the final judgment for their sins. And what we learn here is that God shows no partiality in his grace and judgment. So why should Israel be any different? They won't get a a free pass because of the exodus. And, And what we see here in these verses is that God has always been interested in the nations. A lesson that was very slow for Israel to learn. A lesson that's hard for us to learn. Israel was so consumed with the sin of other nations and the sin against them and their coming punishment that they forgot about themselves and their relation to God. See, in their minds, everyone else else was worse. But their minds were poisoned because they were enemies to God himself. Sin is the poison that keeps people and nations from receiving God's blessing. The question is not which sins have been committed. They're, they're identified all throughout the book. If you're confused, just read through Amos again. No, rather, the, the central point is that sin seriously changes and determines a person's relationship with God. To ignore the presence of sin or its destructive power is to live in a world of delusions and to live far away from God. There were many people who, who looked at all the good things, the good past, and how God had taken care of them and, and assumed that God was just going to st- still be on their side. And they also reminded themselves of all the good things that they had done for God. And, and in both cases, these people had made a fatal and deceptive mistake of basing their relationship on past experiences and ignoring present realities. Israel was making the same fatal error. But he says there in verse 8, I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Judgment will come against the kingdom, except, he says, that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. This remnant will not only survive this, this exile to come, but will survive and thrive as the people of God as the house of Jacob. And what we learn here is that we, there were some true believers in Israel in the days of Jeroboam II. 
There were a tiny minority and wielded little or or no influence on the nation as a whole, but God knew them and God promises to spare them. These are the good soil that passed through the the sieve to be collected on on the floor. But most people, though, are the pebbles that are caught in the sieve and thrown out into judgment. See, the sieve, he says here in verse 9, is is like the plumb line that we looked at last week. It's an instrument that doesn't lie. It it can't fudge the results. A sieve will gather the pure and purge out the impurities. And, And the phrase, no pebble shall fall to the earth, means no person who has rejected the Lord will escape his judgment. This is similar to the plumb line. Which, which shows, if you remember last week, it shows whether things are vertically straight, if they're right. There's, there's no way to deceive these devices. You can't manipulate them. They always tell the truth. A, a sieve and a plumb line, these are truth-telling devices. And for the Lord to use a sieve t- is to prove who, is, who he is seeking to test. It, it, it separates the impure from the pure. The good soil will be safeguarded. The, the pebbles will be there casting the judgment. And so this judgment isn't against all sinners as such in Israel, but a particular type of sinner. Do you see that there in verse 10? The particular type. It's those who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Those are the ones that will be cast out. These people look in their past and nothing alarms them. They notice nothing of their behavior that causes them to think that judgment is coming. And they look to the future and they find no cause to alarm there either. They're sinners, but they're not aware that sin brings judgment and that their sin needs a remedy. They're sinners, but they think nothing of the law before which they stand condemned and no thought of the grace of God that rescues them from this danger that's coming. These are not sinners who know their sinfulness and guilt before God and have sought forgiveness of the Lord. These are not sinners who are struggling against their sinfulness and are seeking to put their sins to death. These are not sinners who are, by faith, righteous before God at the same time. These are people, rather, that are are self-satisfied in themselves as sinners, who are complacent in their rebellion against God, who feel secure even though they are indifferent to the demands of Yahweh's covenant with Israel. They're complacent and careless sinners, living in a world of pretense, a made-believe world. And yet, Amos says, there are few in Israel who are not living complacent lives. They're, They're able to look in the past, of Israel's past, and they were able to see Israel's disloyalty to God. They saw how right Amos was They were able to see their selfishness and their pride in their life and in their fellow Israelites. They could see the foolishness of injustice towards fellow countrymen and foreigners. They could look into the future when Amos preached and they could see divine wrath coming their way. And they understood that disaster was on its way and that Israel deserved it, all of it. These were the people who came to hear Amos preach and who would consider his words, who would listen to the preached word and to take it to heart and seek repentance. 
They knew Amos was the Lord's prophet, and they knew they were hearing from God. They're still sinners, but they confess their sin because their sin grieves them. They were haunted not only by their sin, but they're haunted by the sin of the whole. And they saw their only hope was in God. These are the people who are marked by spiritual and moral concern. They they could see clearly that Israel had failed and to live faithfully before the Lord and the nations. And they also could see that themselves had lived lives unfaithful to God's covenant. And so they weren't hypocrites. They were trying to live lives in accordance to God's word because they loved the word of God and wanted to strive to obey God's word. And Amos says to them a sweet promise here that when God's wrath comes to consume Israel, it will not consume them. They will survive, they will live. They will be the faithful remnant of God. And it's because they stood out from the rest. They sought to obey God and his word. Listen, church, God intends for his people to be different from the world around us. He doesn't mean for us to have some whimsical, weird, little secret things like a handshake that we have here. That's not, that's not what I'm saying here. It's, it's that he desires for us to reflect his character and how we live. It means that we will live differently in this world with our money. We will live differently with our time. We will have concern for justice in this world. We have the willingness to give of ourselves to serve others, to include others in our lives, to to love others. We will live distinct lives. You know, my heart was stirred this week. I saw images, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, videos of a train station in Berlin as trains poured in from the Ukraine with refugees and Germans stood on the platforms with signs saying, how many people they could take to their home. That, friends, you want to look distinct in this world, that is distinct. That's what Christianity should look like in this world. Giving of themselves, inconveniencing themselves. For refugees needing a place to stay, opening up their home to strangers, I saw another photo in Poland where moms took their strollers and parked them at the train station because moms are coming from Ukraine carrying their babies to escape and they left strollers for the moms to use. Like these are are pictures of what Christianity should look like in this world. It costs something to live distinct. And we should be marked as God's people because we share in God's character. And doesn't God's character display itself by taking care of the least of these? Doesn't God's character show itself as serving others? By giving? By inconveniencing yourself? Friend, I want to exhort you to live like that. To live distinct lives so that the world finds you strange and curious 
to live differently than your neighbors or your classmates in school. And why wouldn't you want to live that way? See, popularity with man is such a trivial thing to stand in the way of following God in obedience to his word. Will you give up obedience to God simply because he calls you to live differently in a manner that might not be as popular with those that live around you? Passing popularity with a passing set of friends should never be counted as equal to God's own pleasure that he shares with his people, made in his image, regenerated by his spirit, and living according to his character. And as God's people, we're called to live holy, special, distinct lives, to stand out from the world in which we live. And we see that pattern of God and how he relates and cares for the world. We should have the same concern for unbelievers that surround us in our lives. Well, finally, last point here in Amos, the Lord restores his people. I'm gonna read the last few verses here and I want you to notice that God is the one who takes the initiative in the restoration of his people and I want you to note how many times you read this phrase, I will, in the remaining verses. Look at verse 11. And that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Let's pause there. It was, a, as I said, a counterfeit of the Feast of Booths that Jeroboam I stood at the altar in 1 Kings 12, deliberately m- mimicking the feast held in Judah one month earlier. And this tells us that the booth was a feast in which the king took his central place, acting out his role as a middleman between the Lord and his people, possibly even functioning as the priest. And so with this thought, the raising up the booth of David signifies the bringing in of the perfect royal mediator, the genuine Lord and rightful king who will be everything that was ever wished for in a royal priest. Amos is declaring that they won't have to settle for a counterfeit leader any longer. Their rightful heir will come, namely Jesus Christ our Lord. But it won't be just Israel that will serve this royal priest. No, the nations who are called by his name shall enter. Did you know these verses here, 11 through 13, is quoted in the New Testament in Acts 15? The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 bring up these verses when deciding what to require of Gentiles when they're saved. They don't so much focus on on who the Gentile nations are that Amos is talking about, but instead they go to the heart of the issue, that God's plan is to include Gentiles that bear his name. Just think for a moment if they had misinterpreted these verses and, and misapplied them. The Western world as we know it would still be in darkness. And what we learn is that Israel's exile ended when Jesus ascended to the Father and sent the promised spirit to take his place in the hearts of men and women who put their faith in him. This is how the apostles would understand this text. And the church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, as Ephesians says. So our interpretation of Amos should follow their interpretation of the text. 
when the Jerusalem council convened to settle a dispute over Gentile salvation without adherence to all the obligations of the law, James appealed to these verses here in Amos 9, 11 through 13, as proof that God was fulfilling in the church the promise made to Amos. The message of Amos validates God's plan for rebuilding his household from among all the nations of the earth, not just Israel. And in so doing, our mission is clear, friends. We are to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. God's intention was always that Gentiles be called into his kingdom. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Zechariah 14, 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. The inclusion of the Gentiles in the New Testament church was a fulfillment of this purpose. God was drawing all nations to himself. But Amos isn't done. He says in verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So we've already read in Amos of the punishment that would fall on the people of Israel. Remember, they would lose their homes and they would lose their vineyards. He even says, you know, they wouldn't drink the wine that they had worked to, to make. And all that because of the exile. We've seen it throughout the book that, that sin brings disappointment and frustration. But now Amos looks forward to a day when the power of sin will be destroyed. And the people's fortunes will be restored in God. Houses shall be built and inhabited vineyards planted and enjoyed because they will not glory in themselves any longer, friends. They will glory in the Lord. He will do this. Friends, the last two verses, Christian friends, this should bring us great comfort in this world. God hasn't left his people without any hope. You know, it's been a book of trauma and pain all throughout And I told you it would come at the end of the hope that God has for his people. So today may be terrible and tomorrow may bring more sorrow than we can bear. But there is hope. There's hope because God exists and has a plan to bring this world to a beautiful end. You know, as we heard at the beginning of this morning, Jeroboam was the sign of Israel's pride and security. And not since the days of Solomon had had Israel experienced such prosperity in the land. But Jeroboam was a wicked king, and he devised a a wicked religion that that led many people astray, away from God. But we read that the Lord would hold him accountable for his actions. His counterfeit rule would come to an end. That God is the supreme judge and he will deal justly with all evil leaders. This is applicable for today. I don't know about you, but our news is consumed with what's happening in Ukraine. And for decades, Vladimir Putin has poisoned, imprisoned, and executed anyone who criticizes him. 
He is a counterfeit leader with counterfeit authority, leading a counterfeit peacekeeping mission. And now in the safety of a warm place, he orders young men to murder innocent civilians hundreds of miles away. And the truth is, he may never face judgment here on earth, but he will face God. We can count on that. God will exact justice. God will judge rightly and justly and completely. And we can trust him in that. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you know us. You know us intimately well. You know the the nooks and crannies of our hearts. You know everything about us. You know those areas in which we disobey, the areas where we ignore you. And you know us better than we know ourselves. And we pray that your spirit would, would faithfully and mercifully reveal those things to us that we have glossed over so that we could be, see them clearly and honestly and that we would repent. After all, Christians repent. That's what we do. And we pray that you would give us a taste for you so that we would choose you, God, above all other things. And Lord, that you would do all of this for your own glory, for your own good. And we pray this in the name of our Redeemer and Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.